and welcome to the Alba Diversity Podcast, an Alba network undertaking to profile and highlight diverse and immigrant neuroscientists. The Alba network aims to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences. We talk to neuroscientists across positions, career paths and backgrounds to better understand their personal journeys. We showcase the grit and determination it takes to overcome hurdles as part of underrepresented or minority groups. We talk about what keeps them going as individuals and as neuroscientists in today's world. My name is Huda Zagbi. I'm a professor at Baylor College of Medicine and director of the Jan and Dan Duncan Neurological Research Institute in Houston. Uh, I study the brain, particularly uh, brain diseases, trying to understand their causes, mechanism, and develop treatments. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And uh, I will start off our questions by asking you, maybe try and help you dig a little bit into nostalgia and cycle back a little bit in your time by asking, when was the first time you thought about the brain and neurons? So the very, very first time I thought about it was when I was at the American University of Beirut, a student, a medical student there. I had a phenomenal professor in neuroscience, two of them, neuroanatomy and neuroscience, and I really loved the course. So that was the first time I thought about it, but I didn't think about them as a career back then. I see. you know, finished medical school and did pediatrics. And I was determined to become a pediatric cardiologist. But while rotating, as a resident, you have to rotate different specialties. While rotating on neurology, I started really becoming fascinated by the brain and all the disorders of the brain that I encountered. And the thing that intrigued me the most is that how logical the brain is. And if you see a person with a neurological problem, by just simply talking to them, you can map the anatomy of their symptom. And I found that really very interesting. To me, it was always a puzzle to solve. And I made it the whole month. My job was to try to talk to the patient or their family and solve the anatomy of the problem without touching the patients first. That is amazing. That's from history. That's how logical the brain is. So that's really when I became fascinated uh, with neurology. That's like so old school. Like, I don't even know if such people still exist other than, you know, maybe psychologists or psychiatrists. That's very like that. old school. So. Yeah. So is it something you continue doing then? So you finished your... I have to say my attending in neurology, that was my first, uh, if you will, clinical mentor in neurology. He's the one who really made me appreciate neurology through his teaching. And I really loved it. So when I became a neurology fellow, I always would sit 80% of the time. I can get the answer, get to the right diagnosis without even touching the patient. Just a good history to really map the anatomy. And I still do it to this day. When people <laughs> come to me with a problem and they want me to help solve it, I first need to take a good history. Yeah. 
it could be old school but it works every single time also you will use your best tools at right. any given point of time the exam will add a little bit but eventually the imaging sometimes you have to do imaging so then i did so i i really immersed myself in clinical neurology training as a fellow and that's when i realized this was in the mid 80s to you know 1985 or so i realized this is a very tough specialty while it is really a puzzle and intriguing and interesting but these are people who are affected with devastating syndrome and the the intrigue and the joy of solving puzzles was replaced by the pain of realizing these are all terrible diagnoses and i couldn't do anything for them back then we didn't even know the causes of most of the diseases we worked on so we would tell the family we're really sorry your child has this diagnosis and we think it can happen again we think it's inherited you know or genetic yeah. and i found that extremely extremely painful and couple that with me encountering girls with red syndrome starting with Ashley my first patient I was really intrigued by her diagnosis and how she was normal and lost her skin but it wasn't degenerative so it was all that combined that between encountering Ashley and wanting to understand this disease and recognizing the plight of neurological disorders and the lack of knowledge we had back then I figured you know what as much as I love patients and love the specialty i could probably do better if i go to the lab and learn how to become a researcher and maybe make a difference and make some discoveries that will help these patients so i really purely went into science inspired by the patients and just the urge to do something that would help patients that's amazingly inspiring i mean not many people make that jump you know except for md phd students but it's also so it's such a hard jump to make because uh, you don't know what you're exchanging for what you know personally career wise but i mean it's so inspiring that you ended up following like something that that really emotionally touched you in fact it was a tough decision because mm-hmm. i i finished basically 10 years of training yeah school pediatrics and neurology ready to become a faculty member oh wow and chose to go back and go oh, to gosh. to the lab but i'm really lower than the graduate student oh. at least the graduate student just graduated from college i graduated from college 10 years before oh, so my <laughs> has happened right yeah. so i really you know it's a huge demotion Yeah. And I knew that. I knew that coming in that one I have no research skills. I have so much to learn and two I need to really accept that everyone in the lab is better than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to learn, make my way. And that sounds very daunting. I mean, after finishing a whole specialty you're going to go back to start from scratch. That is really something. But I will do it over and over and over again. It was <laughs> definitely so nice the right decision. that is wonderful to hear it's that, that that was a great glimpse thank you i mean not many people have this kind of sort of career progression so it's so nice to it's so nice to hear a different story
first of all i have to congratulate you for the brain prize <laughs> i know 2020 is a strange year but congratulations so can you tell us a little bit about the work that got you the prize sure so the the brain prize specifically has been given to adrian bird and myself for our work on red syndrome and methyl cpg binding protein 2 i discovered MECP2, we call it in my lab, as the cause of Rett syndrome after years and years and years for searching for the mutation, the cause for Rett syndrome. But Adrian has studied it before as a protein that binds methylated uh, cytosine. So the two of us have really come to it from a totally different angle. He came from a fundamental basic science approach Mm -hmm. as a methyl cytosine binding protein. I came to it, I'm searching for a cause for Rett syndrome, Right. systematically going down the X chromosome and found it as the cause of Rett syndrome. And we both continued to work on it, and we both uh, contributed to various aspects of our understanding of the pathogenesis, reversibility, and eventually uh, how we're going to think about ways for therapy. So this is really collectively, uh, we share this award for that work. Now we sort of roll a little bit into into the whole immigrant minority uh, part of the conversation. So uh, my question is, um, do you consider yourself to be a part of an immigrant or a minority or an underrepresented group in science? And have there been times in your life, in your career, where you faced sort of covert or even overt discrimination uh, because of this? I am actually, I consider myself an immigrant. And I'm proud to be an immigrant and proud to be an Arab American, Lebanese American, whichever way you want to characterize me. I'm really very proud of that. I never forget my heritage. I feel very fortunate that I grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, and the cultural experiences, as well as the education I got there, uh, whether in school or American University of Beirut, I cherish. It's who I am. Mm-hmm. And I would have probably stayed there, was it not for the civil war mm-hmm. that forced me to leave and I ended up here and not able to return back home. So I'm definitely an immigrant and, and these days have really made me reflect on those early days because I came to visit just to escape the war, just for the summer, thinking the war will be over with. Then things got worse and I couldn't return back home. So I turned into from a visitor to a refugee. And in the last couple of years, somebody like me would not have been able to stay. That's the sad reality is that so many immigrants who really could have contributed so much in this country, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, didn't have that opportunity I had back in the eight in, in the you know late seventies. Right. So absolutely, I'm an immigrant. Right. Um, I and I'm among immigrants. I would say I'm probably from the less common ones. Right. Lebanon is a very small country. True. <laughs> and while there may be a lot of Lebanese Americans, I would say the majority of them are in finance and business. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Or medicine. Very few really are in science. So this is why perhaps my type of immigrant is less abundant. So I should give you a little bit part of a history. 
When I couldn't return to Lebanon due to the civil war, uh, it was difficult time. It was already October. No medical school will take a transfer student. But one medical school and one person at that medical school, the dean of the medical school, noticed that I was a good student and he gave me a chance. And that was Meharry Medical College. It's a historically African-American medical school in Nashville, Tennessee. They were the only school that was willing to consider, even though I had superb grades, wow. nobody would want to relate transfer students. So I ended up in Meharry Medical College so I became a minority among minorities. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, yeah. And I had an excellent education there. But the only time, you asked me if I ever faced discrimination, really the only time I faced discrimination is in that one transition from medical school to residencies. I think because I wasn't African-American and went to a minority medical school, I was discriminated again by all the top programs in the country. I see, wow. None of them wanted to really give me a chance for a residency. One person told me, what can I do to get you here? Oh, that's amazing. And that was who I consider my hero in life. You asked if I had mentors or people who are special. Yes, please. Ralph Feigen was my mentor who looked me in the eye when every medical school was rejecting me for residency in spite of being Alpha Omega Alpha top student. He said, what can I do to get you here? Him giving me that chance was a life changer for Right. Because I was able to go to a first-rate top pediatrics program at Baylor College of Medicine. And of course, he was my first clinical mentor. He's, he was one of the most valuable pediatricians this country has seen in the last hundred years. He's really phenomenal. That's amazing. Everybody knows who he is, but to have him as my teacher and mentor. From there on, all the discrimination disappeared. Wow. Once that one person gave me a chance. And I share the story with you because it shows the power of a small decision for someone. How could either be damaging or how could be promoting? And by him giving me the chance, there was a life changer. And really growing up here with in my residency, I asked Ralph, all other program directors rejected me. Why did you accept me? Because they said, you know, I'm not a minority. I went to Meharry and so on. So, and he told me, you know, him being Jewish, he in the past has faced such discrimination. Right. And you better to look at the person and promote the person. Right. Right. Wow. That 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 gave me chills. And it takes. So I, okay. So the the takeaway that I get from this is that you you need to have faced a little bit of discrimination to understand what discriminated groups feel like, and like you said, the power of the smallest decision, where instead of choosing to judge somebody by you know uh, by their looks or by anything else, you judge them by their skill set. And I it seems like it made a huge difference for you. So from there on, I really sailed and felt very loved, very appreciated. 
And people ask me, why don't you ever leave Baylor College of Medicine? You know, I did my residency here, fellowship, research, been faculty, and, and it's really simple. It is a place where I felt welcome and given the best opportunity of my life. And I feel a loyalty to Ralph Feigen to give back, you know, to the community here, that's one. And of course, it's a highly collaborative, fantastic science, genetics, neuroscience place, which fits exactly my interest. So it's a combination of superb academic with a very generous environment that yeah. gave me a chance and nurtured me. And I want to do it again and again and again for others. That's a, as a fantastic reason as any. I mean, you've given a personal reason, you've given like career reasons, you've given professional reasons and science reasons. I mean, what more do you need to sort of, you know, stay and, and give back to a place that has given you so much? So uh, one of the things that I would like to sort of segue our conversation into is also um, including you. There are only six women out of a total of 34 prize winners <laughs> from 2011 to 2020 uh, of the Brain Prize. What are the factors do you think um, that sort of result in this kind of discrimination in this kind of minority groups like women being consistently overlooked for big prizes like this? I think there are a variety of factors. I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, I was really totally shocked and surprised. We never say, please nominate me for this prize or that prize, or please, can you do this or that? We don't do that. So it is, it's by the grace of those who know us. Absolutely, it's, it's by your network and people who know you and know your work well. And Somebody was great. I still don't know who it is, but somebody <laughs> was very generous to nominate us, right? So I think that that's part, part of it. Women don't self-promote as much. It's, it's just, to me, at least it's odd to do that, to yeah. ask anybody to do, to nominate me for anything. It's, it would be very odd. Right. So I think that's part of it, right? Um, there may be many qualified women, but we don't all know about them and it doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a big part of it. And there are multiple factors. We haven't had as many women, but now we do have plenty. True. And I think the biggest factor now is recognizing who they are and everybody sort of fights to nominate them and bring them in. This is, this is the step that I see now holds women back. Right. Anything else? Not that we don't have any more women, successful women in science, right. but I think what's holding it back—they don't self-promote, and we somehow we need just more uh, visibility, I guess. Right? We need more yeah. people to speak up. To recognize that it's important to do right. that. The reason it's really important, to be honest with you, I'm always shy and humbled when something like this happens. In, in fact, I will tell you something. When somebody calls me and says, I want to nominate you for this or that, I say, no, 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 nominate other people. You know, it's fine. I, I really have been honored, et cetera, et cetera. Because I feel really, you know, a little bit embarrassed to get any other award or something. So you feel that. But I think, I think that the reason I also realize there's a value in, in winning an award as a woman because I can be a role model.
Absolutely. I, I cannot tell you, I, I was brought to tears after the Breakthrough Prize when so many girls, little school girls, were, hundreds of emails were right to me, telling me, two, two types of people wrote to me, and those were very emotional, immigrants and young people. Those two populations thought, if you could make it, I could make it. It's, it's so important to see somebody. It's so important to see, see somebody like you doing the thing that you never thought you could do. So I consider these awards really more as a way for me, one, to advance research, science, and mentorship. This is what I use these awards for. But the other side is to really inspire young people. So in addition to the value of the awards that you can put toward good causes, I think the prestige and the honor of the award, you can put it to inspire young people. Absolutely. You saw my history. I came from a small country, went to a small medical school here, and then, you know, transitioned careers. Really, it wasn't a straight path. I think these are important things. I mean, one, one of the things that, for me, what you just said, it really struck a chord with me because not a lot of people talk about, especially like big prize winners, not a lot of them talk about, you know, using the prize and using sort of the, the culture around the prize and like the movement, the emotions around the prize and channel that to improve science as a whole. So one thing is using it to improve your science. So, you know, using it to do better science on your topic of choice in case Rett syndrome or MECP2 or others. But another thing is to improve the culture of science. And I, I feel like you made a wonderful point there because it's not something you hear very often. And along with the fact that, you know, visibility of women need to be promoted. So it all sort of ties into it for me because it's all related to how we do science as human beings, right? And it, it makes perfect sense. What do you think could be sort of some good practices um, that communities and institutions can adopt so that, you know, we, we don't have this problem of bias or overlooking all of these underrepresented groups? Right. Well, the first, the most important thing one has to recognize is the value of, you know, it is a gift for me to have a diverse lab. Mm -hmm. It's not me making an opportunity for people who are from diverse backgrounds. It's really a gift for me. I discover day after day that the diverse lab I have is the lab that teaches me the most. It's the lab that really inspires me the most. So mm -hmm. by having a diverse environment, the thinking, the creativity, the complementarity, the cultural richness on top of the academic and scientific richness, mm -hmm. all of that makes us much better scientists, make us much more creative scientists. So that, the first thing I wanna say, that's why it's so important for all of us to really know the value of that. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I feel really strongly that we need to give opportunities to people who are overlooked. What people who come from underrepresented background, it is very similar. They don't feel they're good enough. It's, you know, we talked about women, but this is even worse. This is even multiplied. They don't feel they're good enough. They don't realize they can compete. 
it's up to us to say, you can, you can. You, you know, you've had negative experience, but you are wonderful. I am here to mentor you. I'm here to hire you to work on the project of your dreams, and I'll be here for you. So I feel it's really important that we do the work. I do recognize that sometimes some students may not have been as prepared, may not have had all the privilege that other students may have had. So it is important that we acknowledge that and we help them as needed. Mm -hmm. I feel the best help we can do is to continue to move earlier and earlier in helping underrepresented group. Mm-hmm. You know, start in middle school. We don't even think about how underprivileged kids have access to so much less yeah, that's in their awesome. schools, in their middle school and high school than other kids. So of course, when they come to a career in science, they have not had the same experience. They have not been as prepared. Right. So the best thing we can do is recognize them, recruit them, mentor them, but more importantly, recognize we have to also start early. And this is why in my institute now, our faculty and trainees are adopting classes in our community to really help students in middle school and high school learn about the importance of science, be interested in science, and have an advocate, have someone, if they have needs in their classroom, whether it's computers, whether it's supplies, we can provide that. Oh, that's fantastic. We'll find a way to provide that. So it's really important to do it at every stage because the systematic negligence of the community, the minority community, is so long and yeah. has been around for so long. There's so much we have to do. Yeah, as scientists, you know, I always think I'm like, oh, if you define a problem very well you can fix it or you can find a solution. But I feel like everything is so interconnected in things like this that it's so hard to know where to start. And it sounds like uh, your group and you, you found like a very good sort of model point. When school lockdown found, I would talk to, to some of my colleagues here who are who work at the Institute and who come from underrepresented groups. And I would say, is your child taking online classes? Unfortunately, we don't have a computer for my child, or unfortunately, we don't have this. So this is how we discovered that. And we really mobilized the troops to help in every possible. Wow. That, that is wonderful. Thank you. That, I mean, uh, on behalf of everybody, <laughs> on behalf of all the children, I don't know if you've managed to speak to them, but thank you so much for doing this for them. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure your actions will have very long-lived repercussions. <laughs> I, I think as scientists, we're really privileged and we need to make sure because we do wonderful work, because we're doing work that's going to help us understand so many things about us, about the environment, our health. You know, we have the opportunity to bring the smartest people to work and that anyone who really has the potential should be given that potential. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alba Diversity Podcast. To know more about the ALBA Network and its activities to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences, please visit alba.network. You can also register as a member for free and take full advantage of the network's resources. For more details, 
follow the Twitter handle at network underscore Alba or Alba Net Brain on Facebook.